just as a warning, there are some slight adult themes in this episode. For more information, check out the discussion post on mythpodcast.com. This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, you'll see what happens when death decides to take an impromptu vacation. Basically, there are a lot of people going about their daily lives without heads. You'll also see why you want to bring some insect repellent the next time you go flying. Then, on the Creature of the Week, that ringing in your ears could be tinnitus. Or it could be this 80-foot monster sneaking up on you in the dead of night. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 34, Uphill Battle. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Today, it's a few stories from Greek mythology. We've talked about Greek mythology before, with the stories of Hercules, Theseus, and others. Today's stories take place before Hercules and Theseus. Mostly. Bellerophon definitely does, but oddly enough, his grandfather, Sisyphus, maybe almost overlaps with the Trojan War, which is after Hercules and Theseus. Really, don't worry about it. Trying to nail down an exact timeline for Greek mythology is an exercise in futility. Bellerophon, the grandson, was known as one of the greatest slayers of monsters in the days before Hercules. He's the original writer of Pegasus, and he fought the Chimera, the Amazonians, and others. But we're not going to start off talking about him. We're going to be talking about his grandfather, someone you might have heard of, named Sisyphus. Sisyphus was a highwayman, a trickster, a rogue, and a king. He founded Corinth, according to legend, and he cheated death not once, not twice, but three times. Though by the third, he probably wished he hadn't. He's possibly the father of a famous general from the Trojan War, and we find him, of all places, in his fields, watching his cattle. After Sisyphus' brother cheated him out of the inheritance and became king of Thessaly, Sisyphus lived a quiet, simple life of tending to his herds and robbing and killing travelers on the road. Only, he found that his cows were disappearing, and he knew who it was. It was his neighbor, Autolycus. Unfortunately, he couldn't prove it. Autolycus's herds mysteriously grew, while Sisyphus's mysteriously shrank. He confronted the neighbor, but it was obvious that, at least from the appearance of the herds, they weren't the ones Sisyphus had lost. Robbing strangers for fun and profit was enjoyable when he did it, but when it happened to Sisyphus himself, it was downright mean. He heard rumors that Autolycus had been given a power by Hermes, his father, to change the colors and shapes of things, so black bulls would be turned brown and their horns changed so that they looked nothing like Sisyphus's bulls. Sisyphus had to prove it, and you'll quickly learn that he's too clever for his own good. He devised a plan. The next morning, Sisyphus looked in the mud and saw that his plan had worked. All the way to Autolycus's farm were footprints in the dirt. Sisyphus was so confident that this son of Hermes was stealing from him that he carved something into all of their hooves. There, in the dirt, stamped countless times on the way to Autolycus's farm, was a hoof print with stolen by Autolycus in the middle of it. Sisyphus gathered his other neighbors, whose herds were also mysteriously shrinking, and they all went to confront Autolycus, who promptly returned the stolen animals. Justice had been served. Like Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago, Sisyphus believed that you can never go too far. Unlike Mr. Froman, 
Sisyphus was a vicious sociopath. So while Autolycus was out calming down all of his angry neighbors, Sisyphus slipped behind him and into his house where he, let's call it seduced, Autolycus's daughter right then and there. Her name was Anticlea, and she was just days away from marrying a man named Laertes. And don't worry, these names won't be on the test. Laertes would come to be known as the father of the Greek general, Odysseus, who played an important role in the Iliad and an even more central role in the Odyssey, which we will absolutely talk about at some point. Later writers insinuate, given Odysseus's intelligence and cunning and what just happened, that his father was actually Sisyphus. Never becoming the rightful king, that throne having been stolen by his brother, Sisyphus decided that when life gives you lemons, you talk to a notoriously devious sorceress into giving you the throne of a Greek city-state. That's right, he talked to our old friend, Medea, whose story we actually haven't talked about yet. And yeah, I have no idea where we are in her timeline, whether it's pre or post-Jason, or pre or post-Aegeus. Likely pre-everybody, but who knows. Alternate versions of the story have Sisyphus just wandering south, founding the town of Ephyra, which would later be Corinth, and growing the population out of mushrooms. Some years later, securing Corinth and married to a woman named Merope, Sisyphus looked out the window to see a giant eagle carrying a woman across the sea who very much did not look like she wished to be carried by a giant eagle across the sea. Sisyphus probably shrugged it off because, well, this was ancient Greece, and this likely wasn't even the weirdest thing he had seen this month. It came to mind, again, when an old man walked into his court, demanding to know if anyone had seen a giant eagle carrying a woman across the sea. His daughter had been abducted by Zeus. As it turns out, her father was a river god, and Sisyphus said he wasn't sure, but it might jog his memory if he had a freshwater spring here in Corinth. The river god rolled his eyes. Done. Now where did Zeus take my daughter? Sisyphus said that, oh yeah, that's right, he does in fact remember the exact details. They're on that island over there. The river god raged at Zeus, but Zeus being Zeus just shot thunderbolts in his direction, and he backed off. For this minor, petty interruption of his activities, Zeus demanded, of course, that Sisyphus must be punished eternally with ceaseless, crushing labor. Yeah, it wasn't the years of murder, robbery, and rape that did it, but this brief and meaningless interruption of Zeus. Zeus called in a favor from his older brother, Hades, saying that they should fast-track the process of getting Sisyphus to the underworld. Hades sighed and called the god of death, Thanatos, who, even though it was his afternoon off, whatever, he would go and get Sisyphus, even though it meant missing another recital. Not having all day, Thanatos, the personification of death, showed up in Corinth, telling Sisyphus to come on. This was it. He was dying. Really? Sisyphus said. Yeah, Thanatos said. Maybe keep your mouth shut when you see giant eagles carrying people. Here, put these on. And what are these? Oh, they're handcuffs. They'll help me drag you to the underworld faster. They go over your wrists, and that way I can just pull on the center of them. No way, Sisyphus said. Yeah, they're pretty cool, Death said. You don't even need to mess around with chains anymore. They're the newest thing in Bronze Age technology. Wow, Sisyphus said. I'm not even mad about being taken now. How do they work? Happy that someone was taking an interest in what he did instead of just running for their lives and screaming, 
Thanatos gave him a demonstration. First you close them over one wrist, he said, demonstrated on his own wrist. Then, the other, and he locked the second cuff on his other wrist. Wait, he said to himself, this might have been a bad idea. It really was, Sisyphus said, and he kicked death into a closet and barred the door. It was normal at first. People seemed to simply not be succumbing to injuries as quickly. Then, not at all. It was when decapitated men were stumbling around battlefields, still very much in great health, despite the lack of a head, that people knew something was wrong. Ares, the god of war, felt the pinch in particular. If people couldn't die, then what was the point of war? If people couldn't go to war, then they might start working through their problems by other means, like diplomacy. Then what? Peace on Earth? The god of war shuddered. This threatened to upset his whole scam. He went to Hades, the aforementioned god of the underworld, who understood immediately. It was Thanatos. He hadn't shown up since Hades had him work on his day off. Come to think of it, he didn't even bring Sisyphus down here. Huh. I can imagine Ares, the god of war, kicking in the door and rooting through Sisyphus's palace until finding Thanatos shoved in a closet somewhere, the god of death raising up his shackled arms and shrugging before putting in some hefty overtime to go collect all the people walking around without heads. Sisyphus was on an impromptu trip with his wife, somewhere not in his castle, and he had a really odd prediction and an even odder request of her. He told his wife that he would be dying soon, really soon, don't ask why or how, he had one final request of her, for after he was gone. It was about his body. Yes, she said, holding his hand. She will treat it with the utmost respect. Preparing it for burial. Giving him coins for the ferryman Charon at the River Styx. What? Oh, no, 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 not at all. Don't do any of those things. I want you to disrespect my corpse. A lot. Like, really disrespect it. Throwing my corpse naked into the street and just letting it sit there would probably be a really great start. Uh, okay, his wife said. He told her, honey, just promise me that you will not show the slightest bit of love or respect to my corpse after I'm gone. Please. For me. That night, Thanatos, the god of death, came for him. Again. He was overworked from cleaning up the mess that happens when the concept of death is locked in a closet for three days but he was surprised to find that Sisyphus didn't resist. Thanatos took his shade down to Hades, bypassing the normal routes. The next day, Sisyphus's wife woke up next to his cold and still corpse, and she went to work. By noon, it was naked in the street. Let's assume it was in a funny position, too. Down in the underworld, Hades was out, somewhere, and so Sisyphus met with Persephone, who entertained him. He was careful not to eat the food of the underworld, and he told her how he was happy to be here. He shouldn't have even been allowed in. What do you mean, Persephone said. I don't know, he said. I think it was just an accident or something, but I was just taken straight here by death. I didn't even have to stop at sticks or take the ferry across, which is good, because my wife didn't even bother to give me money for the crossing. In fact, I think she just threw my body in the street. You know, I'm, I'm happy to be down here, but how does that look for me to be in such a bad state? And how does it look for you all? You have standards down here. 
and to not only take someone by accident, but someone who wasn't even properly prepared with the appropriate sacrifices to you and Hades doesn't really set a good precedent. Anyway, what can you do? You're trapped down here, and I'm dead. He paused for a moment. Unless, Sisyphus continued, pretending to come up with the idea right there, I could set my wife straight. <laughs> Nothing would quite give her a scare like her old husband coming back to punish her from beyond the grave. People would talk about that sort of thing. Might even be a boon to your sacrifices. Just think about it. It wouldn't even take that long. Maybe two or three days. He could see Persephone mulling it over, weighing the pros and cons. The Sisyphus would probably even be back before Hades returned. It would be victimless. She told Sisyphus that he had to promise to return in three days, though. And Sisyphus swore on his honor that he would. As we know, Sisyphus had no honor. So when he snapped awake, cold and naked in the middle of the city street, he got up with the widest grin on his face. He had just cheated death a second time and escaped the underworld. And he was never going back. He found his wife, thanked her for her extreme disrespect, and they left that morning. For years, they stayed one step ahead of death. They had children and lived until their old age. Then, as the years began creeping up on them, it became harder and harder to run from death. Then, all the aged Sisyphus could do was sit there and wait. He had a good run. The Olympians had to have forgiven him by now, and so, death came for Sisyphus. As an aside, Hermes is actually a psychopomp in Greek mythology, the one who takes souls to the underworld, and he's the one who came to get Sisyphus in the end. If we know anything about Greek mythology, it's that the gods don't really forgive or forget. The smug shade of King Sisyphus entered Tartarus, the place where the Titans are kept, instead of Hades. There, in the underworld, he met Hades standing next to a boulder at the foot of a large, steep hill. We have a deal for you, Hades said, speaking on behalf of the Olympians. We're here to offer you immortality, but you will decide what you do with it. You can walk free among your people for the rest of time, or you can remain down here in the scorching darkness of Tartarus. All you need to do is one simple task. See this boulder? Sisyphus nodded. You just need to push it up this hill and roll it down the other side. Okay, Sisyphus said. What's the catch? You can't trick a trickster, unless that trickster is Coyote. Then it's incredibly easy. No catch at all, Hades said. Up the hill and down the other side. It's a normal hill and a normal boulder. He could see Hades was telling the truth. Sisyphus cracked his knuckles. He was a shade now, not his old self. He was strong again. He could knock this out and be back in the world of the living by lunch. He started pushing the boulder. It was heavy, but he was strong. He didn't have a problem until it was halfway up. And then he wasn't only pushing it to keep it moving forward, but pushing it to keep it from falling back down the rocky hill. It truly became difficult about 80% of the way. Sisyphus's arms and legs burned. Sweat poured from him. He didn't know how far away from the peak he was, but he felt like he was almost there. He couldn't spare the strength to glance around the boulder. He could barely hold on to it, his hands beginning to slip because of the sweat. Soon, he stopped. He didn't know it, but he was mere inches away from the peak, but his arms were shaking. He had a choice. Push the boulder just a little more and collapse, 
or use his last bit of strength to get out of the way and let it roll back to the bottom. He chose the ladder and dove to the left and collapsed, watching the boulder roll down to the bottom, past Hades, who was there watching him. Once Sisyphus caught his breath, he wobbled down the hill. Looking back at the top of the hill, he had almost made it. It wouldn't be that hard. The first try on the day that Sisyphus died was the closest he would ever get to the peak. He would continue on for years and decades and centuries, but he would never do it. Still, the possibility of freedom, of immortality, of being able to push the boulder past the peak kept him trying over and over and over again. So hope is usually a good thing for people. But something I found interesting about this story was just how poisonous hope can actually be. Like the prisoners in the pit of The Dark Knight Rises, for Sisyphus, hope is a bad thing. It's only because he believes that there's a possibility of escape that he keeps pushing that boulder up the hill, willingly subjecting himself to torture in the scorching Tartarus. He can see his freedom just over the top of the hill, so he'll push in vain forever. This is the root of the phrase Sisyphean effort. I make glib remarks from time to time, but this is actually a well-known phrase and not something I'm just making up. Like, invisible as wood in the second episode. A Sisyphean effort is a wasteful, futile effort. Like Sisyphus pushing a boulder up a hill. The next story today is of Bellerophon, one of the grandsons of Sisyphus. And he was known as one of the greatest monster slayers of the ancient world. And we'll talk about him right after this. This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. For less than $20 a month, you can get 4 to 8 things that include gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. For instance, the Quest Crate that we talked about a few weeks back came with a really sweet, super nerdy 20-sided die ice mold that I've already used multiple times. I looked it up, and there's a similar one on Amazon that cost $24.48. So outside of the crate, that ice mold cost $7 more than the entire quest crate was. And with the crate, you also got a labyrinth t-shirt, Harry Potter horcrux socks, a Viking drinking horn, and other stuff. So yeah, make sure to go to lootcrate.com legends and enter code legends to save $3 on any new subscription. But Loot Crate is more than just a cool box. It's an entire community of fans that share their experience with each other around the unboxing of each month's crate. As you know, they guarantee $40 in value in each crate, and sometimes it's a lot more. Previous crates have included things from franchises like Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, Legend of Zelda, Doctor Who, and more. So, sometimes things don't always turn out for the best. This June, they're having some fun with the many, many ways things can go horrifically wrong in fiction. This month's theme is Dystopia, featuring things from Robocop, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, The Matrix, Bioshock Infinite, and Fallout 4. They've got a figure, cool collectibles, and of course, a dystoporific monthly tea. I didn't come up with that, but I wish I did. As always, you only have until the 19th at 9pm Pacific to subscribe and receive the June Crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com legends and enter the code LEGENDS to save $3 on your new subscription today. So back to the story. As I said before, Sisyphus lived several years with his wife and actually had children. And this story is about his grandson. Bellerophon, and we can kind of start to place this story in history. Bellerophon's grandson, Glaucus, named for Sisyphus' son and Bellerophon's father, fought in the Trojan War and related the story of his grandfather, 
Bellerophon, one of the greatest heroes of his generation. And if you're wondering how Sisyphus could have supposedly fathered Odysseus, and the man who was the great-grandfather of someone who also fought in the Trojan War, well, that's why I haven't posted a timeline on the website. Like some other great heroes, in Greek mythology at least, we start the story of Bellerophon with him in exile for murdering a family member. Maybe. We aren't told exactly who he killed, but it might have been a brother, though some places say that it was by accident. Though his story is familiar, think about Hercules, it's also different because Bellerophon was a man of ironclad honor, unlike Hercules. He was torn up about his brother. He went to the kingdom of Protus and Tyrans to be purified of the murder, much in the same way Hercules had. Grief racked, he went through the steps of purification and took up residence in the kingdom of Protus. Weeks went by and he helped train Protus's warriors. He also became well acquainted with Protus and his wife, Antia. Dining with them, one night, everyone but Antia was out of the room, and Antia kissed him. Bellerophon stopped dining with the king and his wife. It didn't stop there, though, and continued to the point where the queen was showing up nightly at his room. He never let her in, mainly due to his unimpeachable honor, but also mainly due to the fact that this would only cause problems. He didn't need to be exiled from a second kingdom in as many months. Night after night, he shut the door in her face. One morning, he was awoken not by the knocking of the king's wife, but much later, by the king's soldiers. Antia decided to use the Potiphar's wife method of getting rid of this young man who had way too much blackmail material against her. She went to her husband in tears, saying that Bellerophon had tried to seduce her, but she resisted and came straight here doing her best to channel the not-yet-existent Lady Macbeth, she told her husband that Bellerophon must die. The king stroked his beard and burned with anger, but he couldn't do anything. As an aside, we've already talked about hospitality on the podcast, but basically it was very, very important not to kill or mistreat guests in your house. Since Bellerophon had been there for weeks and eaten the king's food, King Proteus risked the very real-to-him wrath of Zeus if he killed the young man. Instead, he called upon yet another trope that would be used by Shakespeare, and he sent Bellerophon to his father-in-law with a very specific, sealed message. This man tried to seduce my wife and your daughter. Kill him immediately. The message was sealed, and though Bellerophon wondered why the king hadn't seen him off himself, he shrugged it off as he sailed east to Lycia in modern-day Turkey. When he got there, he found King Iobates in the middle of a feast, and the king, happy to have a visitor, told Bellerophon to sit down and eat. He could worry about the message later. They ate and drank together into the night, and Iobates didn't read the message. It was probably nothing. This Bellerophon was a good kid. Almost a week passed, with the sealed scroll getting buried in King Iobates' proverbial inbox, until, with so many unread messages stressing him out, he decided to get to it and sent some replies. Picking King Proteus's message off the pile, he opened it and read it. Oh, it turns out this Bellerophon wasn't a good kid. Hmm, the problem? He had welcomed Bellerophon into his house, and given him food and lodging. Bellerophon was his guest, and he couldn't kill the young man now. Instead of passing the buck or the Greek hero further east, King Iobates had another idea, his rival, 
the king of Caria, had a horrifying beast that he kept as a pet, and he let this pet snack on Iobate's people daily. It was called the Chimera, and it had a lion's body for its front third, a goat for its middle, and snakes for its rear. Most artistic interpretations have it with three separate heads, the lion, the goat, and the snake. So yeah, two creatures that represent power and danger to nearly all societies, and a goat. And it was a she, because apparently the creature was female. In some places, she was the mother of the Nemean lion, and the sphinx, and the sibling of the Lernian hydra, and Cerberus. Iopetes knew that either Bellerophon would kill this creature, and severely weaken his rival, or, much more likely, would die, and Iopetes could kill him without actually killing him. Win-win. As Bellerophon rode east to the place where the pet Chimera lived, he realized that this thing had three heads. It would be impossible to sneak up on it. He needed help. He decided that, instead of going straight there, he would ping-pong across the Aegean for a little while. First, he sailed from modern-day Turkey back to Corinth, the city-state of his grandfather, Sisyphus. There, he talked to a seer, who told him two things. One, he wouldn't defeat this creature without a winged steed. He needed to visit the Temple of Athena in Athens to figure out how to catch a winged steed. He traveled 50 miles east to Athens, went to the Temple of Athena, and when nothing happened after waiting all day, he curled up in the corner of the temple. That night, he dreamt that the glowing form of Athena came to him, lighting up the temple with her radiance. She didn't say anything, but produced a golden bridle. She placed it in Bellerophon's hand, and as she touched him, he had a vision of where he was soaring back across the sea, then inland, and then to a famous spring. There, he saw a white, winged horse drinking from the spring, grazing in the fields and flying through the air. Bellerophon awoke the next morning, the temple awash with the morning light. His side was sore from sleeping on stone, and as he pushed himself up, he noticed something in his hand, a golden bridle with reins. It wasn't a dream. He also remembered the path that he saw to find the creature that would be called Pegasus. He left on the next ship east, back across the sea that would become known as the Aegean, in a few years when a certain someone took an impromptu swan dive into it. Weeks later, Bellerophon parked his chariot far away from the grove with the spring. In the grove was the large, winged stallion, drinking peacefully. Bellerophon, though he had the golden bridle and some assurance that the creature wouldn't bolt, didn't take chances, and he crept up as quietly as he could until he was about 30 feet from the thing. It was startled and immediately began flapping its majestic wings, rising into the air. Bellerophon was awestruck, and he held out the golden reins to Pegasus, who was about to take off and leave this area forever. The creature saw it and immediately began descending until it touched the ground. And as soon as Pegasus touched the ground, a spring began bubbling up through the grove, right next to the spring that he was drinking from. Yeah, that happens. Pegasus was a product of Poseidon, and a certain famous Gorgon we'll talk about some other time on the podcast, and he was born from the blood of said Gorgon when Perseus killed her. It's said that every time Pegasus touched the ground, a freshwater spring would pop up. According to Hesiod, an ancient writer and a source for a lot of what we know about Greek mythology, Pegasus could have the Greek word pege, meaning spring, as a root. He could also have a variant of the word meaning lightning as a root, given another role that Pegasus has a bit later. 
but that particular meaning is debated. And now I'm talking about etymology, when you're probably just wanting me to get on with the story, since Bellerophon is about to ride Pegasus and fight the Chimera. Sitting on the beast, it was remarkably like any other horse Bellerophon had ridden. He rode it in circles for a bit, probably making way too many springs for one grove to feasibly support, and then he looked up. He took a deep breath and spurred Pegasus onto a gallop. They went faster and faster, and then Bellerophon slowly lifted up on the reins. Pegasus understood. He began flapping his wings, and, just like that, the ground began shrinking beneath them. Bellerophon's heart beat faster and faster as they rose, until they were higher than any non-waxed winged human would be for a few thousand years. It was exhilarating. He looked down at the earth, feeling like an Olympian. It was time to fight the Chimera, and in less than an hour, Bellerophon and Pegasus were hovering above it. It was massive, but they were so far up that she didn't even know they were there. The shocking and dangerous lion and snakeheads were prowling around a field. Bellerophon pulled out his bow. He brought several quivers worth of arrows with him. Could it, could it really be this easy? As it turns out, it was. They got close enough to shoot at the thing's heads, but avoid the apparent fire breath because, yeah, the chimera has fire breath as well. The lion roared, the snake snapped and hissed, and the goat screamed, I guess. Regardless, soon the heads were filled with arrows. The thing was still standing, though. It was a mythological creature. It would take a little more to kill the beast. Luckily, in his dream from Athena, Bellerophon had seen a mysterious spear with a lump of lead affixed to the end. With the beast occupied and trying to scratch the arrows from its head, Bellerophon landed and left Pegasus at a safe distance. The lion head saw him first and roared, readying the fire breath, and our hero knew what to do. Unlike nearly everyone ever who has faced imminent fire breath from a mythological creature, Bellerophon kept running toward it. At the very last moment, he threw the spear with the lead tied to the end of it into the thing's mouth and dove off to the side. The fire was intense, but Bellerophon ended up losing only his sandals, having to kick the flaming footwear off because the fire breath was short-lived. Bellerophon had aimed well, and the lump of lead went right down the throat of the lion head. The flame turned the spear to ash, but the lead was a very real lump in its throat, until it liquefied. Lead has a comparatively low melting point, and the lump went quickly until it was molten metal pouring down one of the beast's throats, burning the whole way, making its way to the stomach and the other organs. The heads immediately stopped snapping at Bellerophon, and the creature began running around in a panic, trying to get the burning to stop. Unfortunately, this only sloshed the burning metal around more, until the damage was fatal. The Chimera, still with many arrows in its head, was killed from the inside. She slumped over, dead. Outside King Obati's city, the people were shocked to see Bellerophon landing on a flying horse with a golden bridle. The king's guards met him at the gate. He wouldn't be allowed in. The king had another task for him, Amazonians. We've talked about this before, and we won't really go into the Amazonians right here. I'm planning on devoting a whole episode to the stories of the Amazonians in multiple cultures, but for right now, they're basically warrior women. Bellerophon rode Pegasus and subdued them. Basically, he keeps returning, and the king keeps giving him different tasks. 
hoping that he'll eventually just die. He doesn't, though, and his not-so-secret weapon Pegasus keeps him alive. Finally, Iobate saw him flying to the city on Pegasus. The king told his guards that, whatever, just kill him this time. We're all out of people to fight anyway. This is just getting repetitive. As Bellerophon walked up to the city, something was off. It could be the wall lined with archers, but it also could be the warriors walking up to him with their spears out and pointed at him. He hesitated for a moment, but instead of fighting or running to Pegasus, he said a prayer. It was to Poseidon, and he heard Bellerophon. Quickly, according to some of the stories of Bellerophon, he's secretly a son of Poseidon, so that could be why this happens here. Regardless, Bellerophon prayed that, as long as he advanced, the ocean would advance with him. He was perhaps 200 meters out from the city, which was on the coast, and the ocean rushed up to him, so that it was on his heels. He didn't know what was happening, but he was a guest of Iopetes, and he wouldn't be killed here. Step by step he advanced, and step by step the ocean followed. King Iopetes stood at the wall, trembling. Apparently he forgot that humans generally stop walking forward when they're shot with arrows from a distance. He worried that Bellerophon would flood the city and destroy him. What if he didn't stop after that, too? He would destroy Iobate's whole kingdom. Man after man went out and pleaded with Bellerophon to turn around, but the hero just kept walking forward, the sea with him. Then, a woman had an idea. Perhaps the women of the city could try to convince him in a way that a man couldn't. She stood up, and the women of the city listened to her plan, and nearly all of them agreed to it. Bellerophon saw the gates open, and the women, in their dresses, rush out. They were running to him, raising their dresses up above their waists, telling him that they were offering themselves to him. Just please stop advancing. The chaste and honorable Bellerophon saw the women, and immediately started blushing. It was too much for him, and even though he was filled with indignation after the ambush, his modesty prevented him from taking one more step. He turned and ran from the half-naked women, and the sea retreated with him. Iobates watched from the city. That really worked out, but not in the way that one would expect. If he wasn't interested in half a city of women almost literally throwing themselves at him, some really shaky logic somehow proved that he definitely couldn't have propositioned Iobates' daughter. King Iobates' messenger found Bellerophon a few miles away, despondent next to his lonely campfire. He called Bellerophon to the city, but this time we won't try to kill you. Promise, sitting in King Iobates' castle, Bellerophon read the letter from King Protus about his wife. Bellerophon told him of all the times she had propositioned him and how his honor had kept him from it. King Iobates chuckled. <laughs> that was his little girl, all right. Hey, sorry about trying to kill you all those times. Great job with the Chimera and the Amazonians and the pirates. Want to marry my daughter? Bellifron did marry the princess, and years passed and King Iobates died. Bellifron had some opinions about how the kingdom should be structured, and decreed that... Given the ingenuity on the day he marched toward the city with the sea behind him, everyone's lineage and name would be reckoned by their mother's side, not their father's. The city of Xanthus would now be matrilineal. Years later, after having defeated all the monsters and evildoers he could, he kissed his wife goodbye one day. There was something he had left to do. Immortality. Bellerophon mulled over the word, 
as it began to rain around him. He was up high, but he was committed. He had told Pegasus not to stop, under any condition, until they reached the top of Mount Olympus. Bellerophon had a similar story to someone who would be invited to Olympus years later, Hercules. And unlike Hercules, who had killed people in wrestling matches for no reason, Bellerophon had lived his whole life in modesty and honor. If there was anyone deserving of a spot on Olympus, it was him. Besides, the Olympians were fair and honorable, right? Definitely not extremely petty and self-interested. After the Chimera and Pegasus and everything he had done, they had to admit him into the Pantheon. The storm raged around him, and he and Pegasus dodged lightning strikes, but they kept on flying upward. Bellerophon smiled. Not even the gods could stop him. He would soon reach Olympus. Then, out of the storm, came a gadfly, a giant horsefly, like the one who would chase Io. You see, Bellerophon was probably more worthy to be on Olympus than anyone else up there. The only problem? That wasn't his decision to make. A man can't just decide to be a god. The gadfly landed on the rear of Pegasus and bit him. Pegasus shrieked and bucked, trying to get the horsefly off of him. He was successful. Unfortunately, he was also successful in getting Bellerophon off his back. It happened in slow motion for Bellerophon, who reached and reached for the golden reins, his fingers grazing the edges before he saw Pegasus become smaller and smaller in the storm. As Pegasus moved forward toward the peak of Olympus, Bellerophon dropped backward, through the cloud, and freefall. That was the last time he saw Pegasus. In under a minute, Pegasus shot through the top of the cloud and could see the top of Mount Olympus. He landed and met Zeus, Hera, Hermes, Demeter, everyone, and looked back to Bellerophon. But that's when Pegasus realized that he wasn't there. Pegasus realized in horror that he had bucked Bellerophon when the fly bit him. He turned to run out to the edge, to dive and try to save him. But before he could, Zeus grabbed his golden reins. Pegasus belonged to him now, and would live out the rest of his days as a workhorse on Olympus. And that's where we get the debated possible second meaning for Pegasus' name. Some say it has the root word of lightning, because he brought lightning bolts to Zeus. Bellerophon knew his death was imminent, though he didn't understand it. He had lived his life trying to be worthy of Olympus. Why did they rebuff him? At least death would take him soon, and he wouldn't have to show his face on Earth. Unfortunately, the Olympians weren't even that kind. There's no saying how Bellerophon survived the fall, but I like to think that Zeus, feeling that maybe he didn't go far enough, sent Hermes to slow his fall just enough to horribly injure him. Maybe that's why, in addition to surviving, Bellerophon was also directed to fall into a thorn bush, tearing at his eyes and face, leaving him disfigured and blinded. Bellerophon never returned to his wife or his kingdom in modern-day Turkey. Unlike Rapunzel's prince, there would be no healing for Bellerophon. He had tried to strive for the heavens, and he had failed, and he ended up more miserable than he ever thought possible. Perhaps one of the most honorable of the Greek heroes died an ignoble death. For years, he wandered the wilderness, and the poet Homer says that he wore away his soul. Some later versions say that he was looking for Pegasus, but the mythical creature, having been pressed into service for Zeus, never found him. Bellerophon avoided the haunts of men, blind, scarred, and shamed for the rest of his days.
I don't know how many people listening had heard the story of Bellerophon before, but I bet you weren't expecting it to end up like that. I know I wasn't. He seems like the Ned Stark of Greek mythology, honorable and principled in a world where that can almost be a liability. Taking a broader view, there's a message about hubris in the story about Bellerophon. That's the generally accepted message. It's about the dangers of thinking yourself better than you are and all that. It's an obvious theme, but really, was it hubris? I'm sympathetic to Bellerophon, whose resume stacked up well against most other heroes. It's not like bringing mortals into the pantheon was unprecedented. And really, who are the Olympians to judge? It seems like Bellerophon's sin was misjudging the way the world worked. He thought Olympus was something you could work toward. He seemed to have thought it was a meritocracy, whereas it was really a jealously guarded, incestuous oligarchy. When it comes to peace and quiet on the plain of Leon, versus tolerating Zeus and listening to the Olympians bicker for all eternity, Bellerophon's fate doesn't seem so bad. Granted, Bellerophon would probably say differently, and I've never been thrown from Pegasus at 10,000 feet. Next week, it's the start of the story of the Powhatan woman named Matuaka, no more commonly today as Pocahontas, and the English explorer John Smith. But unlike most of the stories on this show, it won't focus on the romanticized or melodramatic legends that surround the pair, but the actual history, which I find to be way, way crazier than any fictional version. I want to say thanks to Andy E., Kevin T., Josh W., Jacinta S., Amanda H., Kevin T., Andrew C., Rinkel L., Tracy S., Roger B., Sophie G., Stephen L., Ira J., Erica M., Alfonso F., Andrew G., Megan G., Jenny S., Kyle B., Max H., Andrew P., Nicholas S., Samantha G., Michelle G., Jeff U., Jackson B., Bethany L., Tanya U., and Charles F. for becoming members on the site. Thank you so, so much. I appreciate it so much, and you really do help keep this podcast running. And, of course, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a preserved octopus in a crystal ball, you can help support the show and get extra episodes and source pack ebooks that won't make you super sad. Or, if they do, it won't be because you're trying to tell someone's fortune by looking at a small, dead octopus. Anyway, check out support.mythpodcast.com for more information. The creature this week is the Gashadokoro from Japanese folklore. It literally means starving skeleton. You might think that it's just one hungry skeleton, but you would be very, very wrong. It's like 30 hungry skeletons, all made into one giant skeleton. The creature is 15 times taller than the average person, and it's created from the bones of people who died of starvation or whose bodies were left on the battlefield. Their bones, in their anger, gather together to form this massive creature. Another reason not to roam at night, this creature stalks along the road as best as an eight-story tall skeleton can stalk along the road. You do want to avoid it for reasons other than it being a skeleton following you on the road. For any victims it catches, it will bite their heads off and drink their spraying blood. Let's take a step back and think about this. I can think of no worse way to get blood from a human body than biting off someone's head and trying to catch whatever blood sprays out. Also, it's a skeleton. So if you set aside the fact that it has no organs or tongue or really any way to digest and enjoy that blood, it also doesn't have lips or an esophagus. So that makes this really inefficient way of extracting blood that much more problematic. Once it finds you, that's it. There's no way you're escaping from this 80 foot tall monster. You can avoid him though. There's a warning when he approaches. If your ears start ringing in the darkness when you're alone, well, watch out. Because you either have a really bad case of tinnitus or you're about to be eaten by an 80 foot tall skeleton. 
That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.